Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew, I think I made a mistake. I think this is this podcast is actually going live onto YouTube. Live, live. That's that's a little concerning. Yeah. So uh, I didn't mean no to do that. Us. Lucky no one is here on a Friday afternoon watching two scallywags on YouTube Always. talk about uh, investing. How are you going, mate? On YouTube. Yeah, pretty good. Settling back in. Yeah. Cool. Enjoying After your start um, of Melbourne, close to Melbourne summer. Oh, it seems like it, doesn't it? It's like 20 degrees, just yeah, sun's out, guns out. T-shirts in the office, well, some of us. Um, <laughs> and uh, big learnings. I saw a photo of you in front of palm trees with Jamie on LinkedIn. Yeah, taking a couple of selfies down there. It's a bit of fun, the old Huntington Beach. Yeah, yeah, it's good, mate. Festival. Yeah, you're looking, you're looking a bit relaxed. You, even though it was a bit of a tour, you're looking, you're looking pretty relaxed. It's good to see, mate. Came so, back um, it's good. Yeah, it's good. So uh, today we're going to be answering some questions. We've uh, got a lot to get to, actually. There's been quite a few sent in. If you do send your questions into uh, Drew Meredith from Model Partners and myself or our alter ego, or shall I say Drew's alter ego, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth Esquire, uh, you can do that in the link in your podcast player. There's a uh, thing that says ask a question. Just select the Australian Investors Podcast. We go live every Saturday. Uh, we go live for about uh, about an hour every Saturday at 7 a.m. So check it out. Uh, mate, what have you been working on? Bit of everything. Trying to probably catching up. Uh, mm. a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on while we're away. And it was as much as it, you think it's easier to, to do some work while you're traveling, the time zone makes it, you know, it's like 8 o'clock when everyone's at work. 8 o'clock at night, yeah. you're nearly ready to go to bed. So getting back on top of it all, I just wrote an article about what we learned at Future Proof and what, that, you know, what, what we can take away for the advice industry over here. Um, getting back. What on did top you learn? Markets. Uh, not much. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we went through it quickly last time. It's, it is this kind of this trade fair like idea, the the future proof yeah. concept. Had about three thousand people. We met the founder, Matt Middleton. Watched Animal Spirits and ran into yep. Barry Riddle and all those guys uh, a couple of times. Didn't get my selfie, unfortunately. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah, I remember that for the rest of my life. Uh, mm-hmm. But kind of the it was felt like a trade show that was very much focused on you know in advice and investments there's a lot of product providers around it was very much focused on client experience and getting heaps of um first-hand you know uh case studies and and uh chats with people and how they were dealing with different types of clients and the many types of niches for for financial advice and then some super interesting investment opportunities mm. and trends picked up as well mm. yeah um concept that you talk about a lot too i think we mentioned it last time but they're building yeah. this community of financial advisors that is kind of decentralized that they all have this one thing in common which is you know looking for more you know more interesting content more unique experiences similar to what you what you do through the ras community yeah yeah and you guys do it through like inside network and all that sort of stuff so yeah. um it's yeah it's a great thing um i uh i must say that you were missed in newcastle and Port Macquarie this week. Well, maybe you, but also Dr. Dr. Jeremy. Yes, not joking. When I was in Newcastle and I said, hands up here, anyone who knows the Dr. Andrew Jeremy. And uh, about 30% of the room put their hand up and they were all disappointed. But I did 
tell them the reason why uh, you couldn't attend is because you've been um, banned from going to New South Wales um, for all of the crazy interest rate predictions um, that, that have come <laughs> out. So, within, what, within the state of the RBA, is that that's the rule? <laughs> Yields on bonds are up though, mate, and um, people are a bit jittery. I think that's that's one of the fame. That's one of the famous terms uh, that must like. It's basically said in some major newspaper somewhere every day. Um, jitters, market jitters, and I'd say that the jitters are well and truly on. Uh, we love emotional language, don't we? Oh, god! Horror show, bloodbath, you name it. It's all up there. But uh, one point six percent down today. I think it's one half percent will be a bloodbath or billions lost on the share market. Yeah, law of big numbers, just bamboozle people with that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was good, mate. It was good being up on the the coast because uh, it was great to see people and and get a get around Newcastle and, and see in particular what the guys up there are thinking about. Um, but we've got the big events coming up. We've got the one in Sydney on the third of third uh, of October. Uh, something I don't know if I mentioned this last week on the show, but we are running a value investing workshop the day after now. So Excellent. I. I used to do these. I used to do these like three or four years ago. Um, I haven't done one for a while and I'm keen to get back in. So if you're interested in doing a full day intensive program on a Wednesday, um, it's in the Magellan offices in Sydney. You obviously have to pay for it though. It's like a, it's obviously a paid thing, Um, but there'll be a link in your show notes. So come along and join me. If you come to the workshop, you get the two passes to the event for free and there's a heap of other stuff. So come along. Um, But that's on the third. And then on the 26th investors program, just value. Well, value is growth, mate. It's um, we're all one and the same. We're all part of the same family. We're all looking to buy something cheaper than uh, less than what its, its future value is. Yeah, modern growth, modern value investing is growth investing, isn't it? Isn't that the whole thing? Um, but no, seriously, that's it's about like all different types of investing. Yeah. So whether you're, you're investing in tech stocks, analysis, yeah, essentially, yeah. If you want to know how to value stocks or businesses, private or public, um. I'll take you through all of that. I'll share all the notes and the spreadsheets and all that sort of stuff. And even like everyone that comes get like some books, they get some merch, of course, uh, and you get passes to all of the the programs that we have as well as all the spreadsheets and stuff you can take away with you. So come along. Uh, if you're, if it's not for absolute beginners, that's just the first thing to know. Um, in the past when I've done these, I've actually had analysts and, and actual portfolio managers from funds come out for CPD and that sort of stuff, as well as financial advisors and accountants. So come on out. Um, don't, you don't have to be a professional. It's just open to everyone, but that's just the general gist. Um, but then on the 26th of October in Melbourne, there's a free event for folks, particularly if you're over the age of 45, um, come down to the Waddle Partners Retirement Event. Got some great speakers, mate. Um, we're just having a quick chat about it off air. Uh, can you reveal anything yet or is it too early for that? Yourself? <laughs> Me, you and Jamie. Wow. Of course, well, I'm ready to retire. Uh, we know we've got John Glass, so a retire- yeah. specialist retirement coach. He'll be going through yep. uh, the emotional, or not the emotional, but the lifestyle part of retirement. So definitely yep. suited to those, you know, 40, 50 plus. Uh, and yep. we've got some some high-profile investment speakers we'll announce in the next few weeks. Yeah, cool. And you've already, you've already got people reserving spots and it hasn't even really kicked off yet. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, about 60 or 70 people, I think, um, and capacity. So we've got about 50 tickets left. Yeah, right. So get in then. Um, it's a free event. So if you like a deal, come along. Um, that's on the 26th of October. All the links are in the show notes, of course. Uh, you just click into your podcast player and you'll find it there. So, mate, uh, let's just start with the top down. We're a bit of a macro specialist around here, particularly Dr. Andrew Derrimuth. What has caught your attention this week uh, in the world of economics and big picture stuff? Well, the Fed's pushing the market lower again, isn't it, overnight? Mm. Um, yep. I think there's growing predictions and I think that there's quite a few other economists predicting it next year that rates will have to be cut sometime in the early second, in the first half of next year. Bill Mitchell, who we had at our Waddle event a few weeks ago, had a similar story. Mm. He thinks it'll actually be sooner. Um, there was an interesting, interesting sooner comment. Sooner meaning this year potentially, Doctor? Not this year, unfortunately. <laughs> no. but, but sooner than early next year. So it could be. Who knows? Who knows? What <laughs> who knows? There was an interesting comment that we picked up, Jamie picked up at Future Proof, uh, where they're basically saying that in Canada, uh, where they're getting the risk of more arrears on their mortgages, uh, they're basically just extending the tar- their loan term. So you get yeah. less arrears, it reduces your repayments almost immediately and and re- and removes the Im- the potential impact of any you know delinquencies and the forced sale of houses, which is quite, it's literally kicking the can down the road. 
Um, but maybe <laughs> it's what's required because, uh, and we've talked about it happening here, that is, this is an option, uh, particularly for younger people and those people that are probably hardest hit by interest rates. So quite a kind of unique kind of perspective on that. It's funny, isn't it? That's a funny thing. Um, that's a very political thing to do, I find, because that would mean that people who are, say, in retirement still get their juicy interest rates, but the, the typically younger people who are more affected by interest rates um, with the mortgages, they don't know what they don't know, I don't think, in that situation is they're going to be slugged with much more interest in the extended loan term. Um, and it also defeats the purpose of higher interest rates in a way because exactly. because it's well, just interest rates are supposed to slow growth, not necessarily asset prices, are they? That's that's the impact. True. And the flow on wealth effect could be massive. We know that. You know, if there was a real collapse in property, thirty percent, that would just devastate such a big part of the economy. So that's why mm. Derrimits is always so pumped about interest rate cuts because if there's a risk, <laughs> property is going to fall. But uh, yeah, I still feel like he's. He's, I still feel like the doctor's going to get his, his time in the sun. Uh, Bloomberg will be circling when the rates are cut on December 29. Um, but seriously, for those of you that There's don't no know who Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is, <laughs> no, nah, but they're going to call one. They're going to bring him in. Emergency. Um, <laughs> emergency. Doctor, doctor. Um, so for, the, for those that don't know, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is uh, Drew's alter ego who predicted interest rates would fall this year, just uh, for those of you that are catching up. Um, but... Yeah, there's been a fair bit going on. And one of the questions we got actually on, uh, it was an interesting one we got on Twitter of all places or X or whatever the hell it's called these days. Um, it was basically about the the funds that were being closed. I think this was as part of the Pendle perpetual thing. Um, some of the big funds are being closed down there. And one of them, I think it was Ash, I could be wrong, Drew, but off the top of my head, I think it was Ashley Pittard's fund. Um so some big funds that uh, people will know were being basically closed down. And one of the comments on Twitter was effectively like, I'm down. My portfolio is lower. What does this mean? Like, why does this happen? And basically, it seems like there's a big consolidation of some of these active funds, which we'll probably see happen in the future. Those kind of like, whether they're global funds or Aussie large cap, they'll probably be squeezed. I think we forget um, that we're, we're running a, in a, it's a commercial environment and a capitalistic hmm. environment. So most of the decisions to close funds, we had a few last year. And as you can tell from this example, it's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, apart from being forced to sell an investment at a loss. You know, you're not losing money as a result of the closure. Hmm. You've lost money because of the performance before. Um, but so much of it is actually just a commercial decision. So in this case, I don't know the fund, but it's probably because they weren't raising enough money in that fund. And it can mm. cost as much as a couple hundred thousand dollars for these companies to to keep a fund like this open. So if you think yeah. you've got a hundred fund, hundreds of thousand dollars per fund, it's pretty easy for an executive to say, oh, we can save $500,000 by closing this fund that isn't raising any money. We're not marketing. It's not popular, um, which is mm. bad, naturally bad for the investors. Um, yeah. But it's kind of – and there's other examples like the portfolio manager of that fund might have – left or taken other responsibilities. And Which we saw not too long ago. Yeah, viable anymore. Yeah. We had that twice in Asia, unfortunately, and it was right before Asia started to recover. So um, yeah. it is, it's bad in terms of forced result, but it's generally a commercial decision. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I apologize for those folks who wrote into me on Twitter last night. It was a long night. My plane was delayed three and a half hours. I had a lot on my mind. So... I apologize uh, for the person that wrote in with this question, but um, they were saying effectively that they were down like 30 or 40% or something. They were really disappointed because it was starting to come back. And my comment was like, if the fund's down 30 or 40%, it's probably a good idea that they closed it for you. Um, yeah. Just like it, it might sound a bit, you know, shallow, but it's actually true. Like if it's performed poorly, it's probably a good idea. It's probably saved you from that anchoring bias of like it's you know it's gonna come back, it's gonna come back, and it may not come back. So um, we have another similar question here, don't we? That you, just because mm. it's fallen, it doesn't. Not every company comes back. Not every stock market always goes up. Not every asset always goes up. There mm. there are plenty that never come back or that trade at significantly lower values. We know what they are. Um, mm. Yeah, <laughs> we talk about them every week. <laughs> There's a few of them um, appearing now that interest rates have gone up. What do they call them? A ZERP. Uh, I think there was a there was an article in the AFR this week that I read about Mark Burris and the Yellow Brick Road uh, voluntary delisting 
Right. Yeah, you're just trying to knock them off used- the podcast chart, aren't you? Yeah, it's, it's Mark. We're coming for it. no, but there was a thing that uh, with Yellow Brick Road, which is the mortgage business that um, Mark Burris, being the apprentice guy from Australia, um, they I think the AFR article said it, he's one of the the company's one of these ZERPs, Z I R P, which is like a zero interest rate puppy Policy. or something. That's what it used to Pol- be a beneficiary of low interest rates, really. So they did yeah, listing. So they went into what was already a listed company, probably an old mining company shell that had no assets. He mm. runs a mortgage broking firm and put that in there. Um, but I think it, you know, there's a massively, it's a massively competitive market, so it didn't turn out particularly well. And they were drawing attention to, I think he was taking his franchise fee or his kind of license fee out of the company despite it making no money for the last few years. So it kind yeah, of a- reflects that difficulty. Like there's, what is it? There's a 1,200 stocks on the ASX or 2,500 stocks on the ASX. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that you would never touch and this is like serious micro cap territory the permatan <laughs> so, i don't know if you want to be showing this around but um it's just a reminder that there's it's a bit of a wild west outside outside the big companies and the and the blue chips whatever your yeah. definition of blue chips is and that's why we generally and we've talked about before prefer a manager who's able to focus specifically on this part of the market because it's very difficult to get information on a company like that. It's actually a question on that, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things like um, you just got to be mindful of like whoever's um, running the business and what their incentives are. It's just really important to understand that um, at any one time. And that's not a knock against Mark, but it's just like in general, you just want to know um, that, the business that you're investing in or the fund that you're investing in, there are incentives, commercial incentives behind the scenes, which you might not always know. Um, but as a long-term investor, those incentives have to align with your incentives. So it's all well and good for a CEO, for example, to not get paid a lot of money. You think that's good because they're not taking as much from the business, but they might be getting a lot of options that are investing in short-term schedules or something. So that's not good for you. Um, so just understand where you're going to die don't go there. Um, so there was a few hypothetical questions that I had for you, mate. One was, who is the greatest share investor you have ever met? So this is the Met, Met one, isn't it? You can't say Warren Buffett because you've never met him. This has to be someone. No, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, found I, it quite- I, would, I would take yeah. a high five with Warren Buffett. You don't have to have met him. You yeah. just high five him. But if, unless, if you haven't high fived him, you can't choose him. It's, I mean, it's a tough one. So we'd meet a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fund managers, um, like okay. hundreds. So I'm asking you to pick your favorite. Okay. Maybe this thousands. is going to be, this is almost um, political. I mean, there's probably a couple and they're the high conviction guys. I think I tend to like the high conviction guys and the ones that have been able to identify things and kind of mm. stick their neck out when other people won't. Um, mm. So Nick Griffin's someone we've known. So he runs Munro Partners. He also, I remember we, we invested in his K2 fund a long time ago it only ran for a year and got shut down but it went up 35 40 percent in tech hmm. before anyone was doing tech so it's 40 percent a year totally unexpected got shut down for another commercial reason uh, he left and started munro um and best investor i think because of his ability to identify long-term thematic trends before thematics were popular so this is before thematic etfs this is before theme funds he mm. was you know he, he was looking at the the disruption thematic he was looking at e-commerce he was looking at high performance computing um well before like mid 2000s as, a, as an investor over here um mm. and the other ones kind of their their way that they their high conviction nature and the way that they stick to to things so bob desmond you might have met yeah, yeah. Global. Um, yeah i haven't met him but yes he's been on the show yeah interesting i had a few too many beers with him maybe <laughs> that might have helped maybe, maybe i have to bleep that one out but uh, <laughs> Just a willingness. So it's basically this high conviction portfolio and this willingness mm. to just put it out there every year and do what you say you're going to do, uh, which I think is is rare in, in financial services. And yourself? I actually your, didn't think you'd ask me this, but uh, I was just trying to think. Can't, um, it can't be um, the, the owners of Sol Patterson, can it? Oh, I know you want to Rob go there Milner. straight away. Rob Milner. Yeah, no, no, that's in the that's in the we'll get to Rob Milner and the, the Soul Pats question in a minute. But uh no, the I would probably say it's a hard one and this might be divisive amongst some people, but I'd probably say Andrew Page, who is a yeah. um a friend of mine. He's for, he's a founder of Strawman. I'd actually say as a private investor, he's probably the most um 
I, I think I'm quite interested in the way that he invests because I like the way he goes about it and how nice of a guy he is. But um, he's got a really simple, consistent way to look at small companies. And he's, I, I know because I know him, but his returns are just absolutely phenomenal. So um, he's not a professional investor these days, but he does it for himself and it's awesome. And he shares that with the straw man community. But uh, the second question I had for you was without knowing anything else about a company, because I faced a bit of criticism this week, without knowing anything else about a company, what three things would make that company or what would it do to make you think it's only set up to profit the board? So what would that company do just this fictitious company. The biggest shareholders on the board. Maybe that's all the whole families on the board. Would that be a oh maybe multiple family multiple? Okay, family what members? are the three things you would go without? Like, I'm just thinking pattern recognition. What things would make you think this company is not set up to serve me, but to serve them? I hate it when there's board members with too many other positions. Board positions, mm-hmm. like you know, you're, you're a serial board member. That are you really yeah. adding value to that board, or is it just a, a board fee? Yeah. Um, I mean, naturally, if they're being paid on it as a board that it's higher than other companies or it's not in the same ballpark as the size of the company, a small cap paying a board, a fee that's similar to a large cap would be a bit of a concern. Mm. Um, and uh, there's other, I mean, broader things would be like, you know, are you, are you referring to, to a famous airline or are you, um, <laughs> is it a lack of kind of oversight of the CEO? Like, is there a lack of pressure? Uh, no. Oh, yeah, you know, that's a good one, yeah. Kind of a, like where where the whether there's strategic no strategic direction is an easy one where they're not you know showing an actual strategy or a pursuit of growth. If you're on the ASX, you really want to be having some sort of growth strategy. Um, and maybe it seems like the 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 CEO or the management team aren't being um, controlled or managed as well as they could be. I mean, that's the the, the role of the board is to represent mm. the shareholders and control management or set strategy for management. Right. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's those are all respectable answers. You know, I wasn't thinking of Qantas, although I did see on my Twitter feed before an apology from the new Qantas CEO. So yeah. um, that's a bit of fun, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people don't understand the nuance. A lot of times we just blame CEOs for things when really the board is the one that's meant to oversee the CEO. But the board, in many instances, gets off kind of scot free. Um, because people don't identify as well with the board. They identify well with the executive who runs the business. But in the case of Qantas, we did talk about that, didn't we? That um, that basically like it seemed like who was running who, not the board yeah. running the CEO, but the other way around. And um, it's interesting because oftentimes the CEO is someone who does have a lot of shares in the company, so they do basically control the board. Um, so that's that's a that's a fair fair thing to make, but it's just being aware of that. Like you could look at like Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and say, well, he's got over fifty percent voting control. Um, is that a good or a bad thing? And if you were a long term investor, it's a good thing. It, but could that have gone wrong? Absolutely, it could have. Um, yeah. So um, I guess you just have to really trust in the person that is running your business. I, we just did get a live comment from CP. Hello, gentlemen. G'day, CP. Um, we did not mean to go live, CP, so just keep that in mind. Was that first um, podcast? Yeah, it's our first time. Um, but we do have a lot of questions sent in, mate, and it is a Friday Arvo, so we should probably get cracking into it. Uh, the, the I was going to flag. We did miss okay. out on uh, Rupert Murdoch stepping down, just going around the news. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, we did see oh, that, okay. yeah. Stocks bumping today, so... Lachlan Murdoch, like the in in person succession is happening. Aye. Lachlan would be the uh, oh, what was the oh, I can't remember his name in succession, but we'll get back to that. Um, no, I thought that yeah, was super interesting. Um, and then the market's tanking because the Bank of uh, the Federal Reserve said we're not going to cut rates next year, like you think we are. But I think this is very okay, much <laughs> prediction this is, time. It's very much a game of communication. So we know central banks, the big role is to communicate, not necessarily to take action. So they're, they're always very wary of, of, you know, say, I mean, they've always done it, say one thing and do another. So I think the market moves in the short term on communication, but the long term on policy. So I wouldn't worry too much about the noise that's happening and I'm still confident it'll be, rate will be, rates will be cut early next year. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It's like, like, like the Fed and the, uh, and the RBA. So we've uh, we've actually covered a few topics today, uh, Zerps, uh, News Corp. Um, the key thing to remember is this: do as I do, not as I say. 
Um, because Don't many of the things... Ba- That's the one. What is it? Sorry? Don't bet your house on the base case. Don't bet your house on the base case. That's an, is that a golden rule? Anyway, um, I think a lot of times people can take the things that we see too literally and not understand, again, the incentives of these organisations or these people to do things in their own self-interest. So um, keep that in mind. But there, we, have to, we get a lot of questions sent through this week, so we'll try and get through to a few of them. But just remember, if you do send a question and we do award a prize for the best question and name, try and keep it PG. You can send us a question, link in the, uh, the podcast player or below the video if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, and we don't know your personal circumstances. Uh, you know, Drew over here might want to go and buy another, another bar. I don't really have an interest in owning a whiskey bar, but maybe he does. I don't know that. So we don't know your personal circumstances. Seek the advice of a licensed and trusted professional like, say, Drew here uh, before you act on any of the information that we deliver today. You can find more information in our financial services guide on the RASC website. So Burrow Smorgasbord wrote in and said, this was a du- this was a juicy one way to start the show. I want to be as close to 100% in equities at all times, but often have dry powder waiting on the op- waiting for opportunities. What do you think of keeping this cash in, for example, VAS, the Australian 300 ETF from Vanguard? I benefit from the market upside and can sell down to buy specific stocks when they become good value. The assumption is that a broad-based index fund will be less volatile than any single holding and will therefore drop less on average in a down market. So in effect, they're saying, don't put the money in cash, put the money in an ETF and then take it from the ETF to put it into individual shares when those shares fall. Thoughts? Isn't the nature of the market, there could be just as many things drop less as there are more. Is that the, the nature of the market? That we're saying that it should drop less, but that can actually, it's the market, so it be average. I mean... <laughs> so you're saying like the stocks that this person wants to buy could go up when their ETF goes down. Exactly. So it could do the opposite of what you actually want. This is the thing about markets. And we're saying a benefit from market upside, but there's no guarantee that the market will always go up. Uh, And Mm. there's a lot of biases within the ASX that, you know, if you're buying healthcare, but mining and financials do well, then you're going to be in the opposite position or do the opposite. Uh, I don't think this is like... There's a few groups that talk about this that you could, if if you were an unemotional and had, you know, the ability to make informed decisions all the time, there's a case to be made to have all of your retirement savings invested in equities throughout your retirement. I'm sure you've oh, seen yeah. that too. Like you'll get the best return. Just have a bit of cash. Last longer, but you have to be unemotional. You have to be completely detached from your money to be able to deliver this, which given this person kind of talking about buying stuff when it's lower or higher, feels like they're not completely emotionally detached from their investments and I'm, I'm like yeah it's not necessarily the it's not the best not the worst strategy but it's like how much cash you're holding that you're worried about that dragging your return so much um, I feel like if you're going to be deploying this money within a three four five months then just hold it in cash there's the risk you know during March 2020 the ASX fell 25-30% in like eight days. It's not really going to help you then. Um, and that that can happen. It essentially happened at any given time. So uh, I just keep it simple. Avoid the transaction cost and keep it in cash and deploy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting because like a lot of people say, well, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway should have just taken the cash that they have instead of sitting on that and just put it in an index fund. And then when they're ready put that into deploy that into like Goldman Sachs and the GFC and that. But your point is right. Like their, their index funds would have fallen at the time that they needed the cash to buy it, bail out. Yeah. Um, it would look good. Uh, back Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Your back yeah. test, that'd look beautiful. But uh, a lot of things look good in a back test, like with 2020 hindsight. In fact, one of the things that's quite interesting was um, the study that was, is repeatedly done, which shows that Donald Trump would have been better off. He would have been richer if he had just taken his inheritance and put it in an index fund. Um, rather than do all the things that he tried to do. Um, it's really interesting because he was also the apprentice um, host over in the United States. Um, so it, this is a, that would be a risky strategy because long-term investing is really just about, you know, smoothing out volatility. But in the short term, it can be very risky to use a strategy like this. Uh, I've thought about this before. Like you could have maybe just like 100% equity exposure with a little bit of cash. That's the one you're referring to. And some people have done that. Um, but I think you can build a diversified portfolio with like bonds, stocks, 
cash um, and some other assets classes pretty easily these days. So why wouldn't you? Um, and it does pres preserve purchasing power. So uh, everyone's different. Get personalized advice. So Jay's wrote, written in and said, and this is a quick one. Can I invest a large sum into an investment like a stock or an ETF with your guidance? Thanks, John. Um, well, you can go and speak to Waddle Partners or any financial planner that you want, and they can take into account all of that. Um, if you're wanting to invest without our guidance, just into an ETF, you should know that there are limits on the actual trade size that you can place with an ETF. So it's, I think it's between 500,000 and 750,000, depending on that. Um, so for example, you can't just go and get like $10 million and just put an order in your self-wealth account that says buy VAS $10 million. They won't like that. Um, I've spoken to Vanguard about this in the past and they've told me that they prefer, for example, smaller, break it up into chunks so that their market makers have a chance to actually build the portfolio. But if you want personalized advice, see a financial planner who can take into account a whole range of different factors. Anything else to add, Drew? No, I don't think so. And yeah, if you've got a large sum, you definitely want to be looking at what your objectives are and, mm. and trying to find some, get some framework or strategy around it. Yeah. Uh, CP's written in um, live. Uh, gents, a question, if I may. Would you rather buy a good company but not so good management or check management first, even though the business is all right, uh, but has potential for decent upside? And, upside? and what's your take on judging the character of management? This is a pretty hard question to answer. So would you rather a good company with not so good management or check management first? So basically the value of management versus the value of the business. Often, what's the old saying that if... Um, if you're betting on the jockey or the horse, you should probably bet on the horse. Um, yeah. um, isn't that the old saying, something like that? I think so. Well, the horse can... does make it work, doesn't it? Sorry, jockeys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jockeys yeah. Because you can have, like, one of the things that you can have is you can have a bad manager run a great company and it won't do terribly, but you can't, sometimes the best managers in the world can't get on a terrible, a broken down ass, so to speak, yeah. and um, do well. I think that's the Pat Dorsey line. Um, yeah, I think if you, want company, like if, you, if you don't have the bones of a good company, you're always going to struggle. And there's probably different spectrums of bad. Like, is it is it like poor strategy or, you know, business can still grow even with poor strategy. So I'd probably mm. tilt, and, but unless, you know, when you're talking about bad, is it is it incredibly bad? Um, and I think it's an incredibly difficult uh, thing for most investors to do. Like it's, yeah. you know, the, the AGMs are so stage managed that you don't really get much insight. Um, we look for when we're combining direct equities with fund managers, we look for fund managers that are going to these meetings and asking real questions and getting one-on-ones with management, I think is key. That's the only way that these people can actually work out the cultures of the management style. Um, and then other examples like they'll get, they'll do investigations or pay people to do research into the background of CEOs that are taking over businesses. They got major shareholdings in, or they'll talk to their customers and suppliers and ex-employees. Uh, mm. and, and that's something as a, Direct investor, you don't have the resources too, but some of the biggest fund managers um, are very focused on that because I think that G or governance is a big part of, uh, mm. of I think, successful investing in any sort of company. I think it's so important to have um, a focus on it regardless of what type of investor you are. But you're right, the access to management does help. Um, you can listen to calls and you can jump on analyst calls even if you can't contribute. But in Australia, a lot of the small and medium-sized companies you can contribute to. Uh, you can ask a question. Uh, some of the AGMs here in Australia, you can contribute to. Uh, I think we're all. I think we all think we're above average, or most of us do. And I think I have an above-average ability to judge management. But I wouldn't be willing to bet that management alone is going to be my investment strategy. Like my ability to judge someone is a good indicator because there's been times where I've been very wrong about not very wrong, but I've been there's something else has blindsided my assessment of management. So you have a good manager who's passionate about it, who's aligned with shareholding, but then they just get blindsided by a director who wants them out of the business or um, an industry something or other, or maybe there's a something that happens that you don't actually, your assessment of management is overwhelmed by a bigger factor in determining the success of that business. And so even though it's vitally important, I'd say the business is the first port of call and the management team to sit on top of that horse. Good question, CB. So Ty wrote in a question and asked, 
I have a sum of money in the, uh, that I put in the Spaceship Universe portfolio. I don't know if you know what this is, Drew, but the Spaceship thing was that really low-cost micro-investing platform that invested people's money into um, the NASDAQ. Basically, yeah, basically growth stocks. So yeah. I think I thought, saw before there was like Alibaba and a Starbucks and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm down about 1400 bucks. It's a fair bit on $5,500. and been waiting for almost six months to recoup the losses and get out of it. Uh, but it's not happening. Is it better for me to sell my position at a loss and invest the capital in one of the ETFs I've been dollar cost averaging? I just want to say here, we can't tell you what to do. Go and read um, the product disclosure statement from Spaceship and um, get personalized advice if you're unsure of what you should do. We can't give you personalized advice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to split this around. I'm going to say, Drew, generally speaking, if you've invested in one of these funds, not just Spaceship, but any of these high growth funds that were really popular for the last 10 years and then 2022 happened, um, and you're nursing those losses like we talked about at the top of the show, what kind of process or framework can you put in place for thinking about is it time to clean slate? Um, like how do you how do you think about that? Take off, rip off the Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly like it's incredibly difficult, and there's this there's this common occur common kind of theme when you read these questions that I've been waiting six months for it to recover, and yeah. there's not there's nothing there's no rule that it recovers. Like mean reversion, if you bought when it was up here, and now it's down here, there's no reason that the mean wasn't up where you bought it necessarily. So mm-hmm. mean reversion happens, but usually it's to a trend, um, and there's a risk, particularly in growth companies, as we've seen, that these companies never recover, that they stay down ninety percent or disappear or get taken over at a much lower value than what they were once worth. And you're seeing at the moment, like the Arm IPO, Instacart, all these companies are coming back to market, but they're at 30 or 40% discounts to their last private raising. Um, so the value of them may never actually recover. And if it's that, in that case, like we can be more objective when we manage people's money. We basically try to try to explain the fact that there's an opportunity cost of staying in those companies if there's a greater growth and return opportunity in the alternative. So mm. if you disconnect and say, well, actually, I've got a better opportunity of recouping that 20% I lost. If you lost 20, you have to make 25% to recover by putting it into this other asset and then remove the time frame from it. All we want is this to happen over time and get the benefit of compounding, mm. not to immediately offset. And uh, we get anchored to that one investment. But in tech, in mining and all these things, it may never actually get back to where it was before. Mm, that's a good one um i I think that's so good to think about like the timeline um i think there's a lot of good frameworks around this one of them is uh if you had to rebuy your portfolio today would you like if you if you woke up this morning and you thought you look down at your brokerage account you're like oh gosh uh what's that doing in there um Imagine that you had to rebuy it today. And this comes from um, my friend Joe who talked about this for years. And he said that basically by holding a stock, you're making a choice to keep hold. You're making a choice that if you were, if you had money today, you would buy it today because otherwise, why is it in your portfolio? And um, if you think about that, like if you had to clean slate, would you buy it again tomorrow? Um, that's the, the way to think of this. I think this is an interesting one because obviously most Bad decisions are made when you don't know if it's right or wrong. What I mean by that is in investing, it tends to be the case that it takes two, three, four, five years to know if you actually made a good decision or not. And in this case, at the time, someone might have made a decision to invest in a high growth fund. And it made sense because like we're in a low interest rate environment. Tech stocks were going through the roof. Everything seemed pretty sexy. And now fast forward, tech stocks have been punched around a bit. The fees on these funds, in this one in particular, have gone up uh, at a time when people's balances have gone down. Um, and I think that in this instance, it may have been a good decision then. It may have been a bad, a, a, a bad decision then, but it may also be a bad decision now to sell. So it's very hard to know. I would just take this in the context of a broader portfolio. Like I have a few grand just floating around in Rays. Um Owen in the comments here just said I'd rebuy my portfolio. Uh, I, I I have a few grand just floating around in Rays and um, it's just accumulated over time. And I don't know if you have a Rays account that just keeps clipping the ticket on your spending, but I definitely do. And uh, I just treat it as absolutely ridiculous money. Like I, I don't want to sound like a first world kind of 
finance knob here, but like I just put it in the most ridiculous things I can pick. And Ray's always tells me, this is probably not a good idea, but I just do it anyway. <laughs> um, so taken in context, it's okay to have something that is a higher risk thing, but I just, I agree with you completely, Drew, that uh, trying to time when things should be bought or sold is very, very fraught with error. Um, Ryan sent a question. Hi, guys, love the show. When you have a company with a substantial portion of goodwill, what would be the best way to analyze that goodwill as an asset or a liability? So, Ryan, just real quick here, good question. This is more of a fundamental investing question. Um, goodwill is basically basically happens to appear on a company's balance sheet when the accountants can't make sense of what the CEO has done. Um, so one's a simpler explanation than that. It's an intangible <laughs> asset. It's and an you intangible only get goodwill. asset. You only get goodwill when you buy something, right? Yeah, but you, you get goodwill. Between what you pay and what the value of that company was on its balance sheet or the value of that company's assets. Exactly. So what you get is an intangible asset. So you're paying above the, the value of the assets of a business. So for example, if I start a company and it only has $100 in its bank account, but it's got a good website, um, and you pay $1,000 for it, you'd get $900 of goodwill because that's the difference yeah. between the actual assets and the other thing. Um, and it only comes from that. You can't create goodwill for any other reason. Yeah, and they, they, they have to test it for impairment. That's the important thing to understand. So a lot of these companies that come out and they say, don't worry, it's a non-cash impairment, that just means that they spent the cash two years ago. Someone else spent the cash two years ago on buying this company and now they don't think it's worth as much. Um, yeah. And so, it's in mining companies. So, like, a, happens a, a lot. Yeah, built or uh, bought an asset, like a oil rig, and the value of that oil rig is based on a hundred dollar US dollar mm. oil price, but the oil price is eighty, and you have to decrease the long term value of that asset. And that's a non cash impairment. Mm. And in that case, it's probably fair to make that MPV assessment and net present value. Yeah. But in the case of like a serial acquirer, you've got to be mindful of this because it can affect. Um, it can affect how the business reports profitability going forward. And it also should call into question the company's long-term capital allocation. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, metrics like uh, return on invested capital, return on equity will help guide you to whether the company is allocating capital in a good way. But in the short term, it's very hard to know what the true value of the underlying asset is. Good question though. So um, here's a good question that got sent in by how much did Morgan... How much did Morgan's house sell? Did Morgan's house sell for? Anyway, that one that one got me. They say I have IVV, NDQ, and the Qual ETF as part of a superannuation accumulation account, so they're not yet retired. It's within Australian Super's members direct portfolio, which is, as you know, Drew, a way for people to buy and sell their own investments using an industry super fund like Australian super. Yeah. How is the tax on the income treated in accumulation? And then when I get into pension phase, so it's more of an educational question. How is that income treated? So it's treated the same throughout the entire uh, superannuation environment. And I'm pretty sure frame credits in superannuation in this type of account is only allocated to the individual. Uh, there's a broader story on that, but in accumulation, all income and capital gains is taxed at 15% within your account or within the fund. I think it's usually deducted at the end of the year or quarterly, depending on, on the structure. Um, if you've held an asset for more than 12 months, you get a 33% discount. So the effective tax rate is 10% of the capital gain. Um, in pension phase, all those go to zero. So you don't pay any income, any tax on the income. You don't pay any tax on the capital gains. So incredibly, mm. it makes you know super the best, best wrapper for retirement by far. There's this little unique wrinkle with industry funds where if you're in the pool trust, the franking credits uh, are allocated to the whole pool. So even if you're in accumulation, your tax rate might be lower than 15%. But that's a completely another level. Mm. It's not great if you're in pension, if you're you know if you're a pension phase or your your frank credits are being used elsewhere. Um, but that's not the case, I believe, in member direct options where you're you're allocated your the franking credits associated with your own investment. That's great. Good. Uh, that's actually really helpful. Um, so Rodney just asked a quick, quick question here in the chat, Drew. Uh, are you planning to hold a re water retirement session in Sydney as well? I think we will eventually. We're gonna, we talked about launching a quarterly kind of um, community catch-up. So that's probably something we'll do in 2024. That'll yeah. be Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Melbourne and rotate. 
So, uh, Rodney, just so you know, um, Drew and Jamie and the Waddle team is joining us in Sydney. So um, they'll be there and there's a session that we'll be hosting together. We're doing this live. So um, so come along. Like there'll still be plenty of content for like retirement planning and chance to speak to financial planners. Like they'll, the team will be there. Um, so maybe Joe just asked a really quick question. Joe said, any thoughts on the purchase of companies below their book value? South 32 is currently at below book value. I'll be real quick with this one, Joe. So the book value is basically the value of the assets inside a company as on its balance sheet. Uh, but the true value of a company in today's modern society is that book value plus the intangible value of a business. And Charlie Munger has been very big on this for many years. Um, you know, the, the value a company creates is not just what you see on a balance sheet. Um, and that's also not necessarily representative of the liabilities a company faces in the future. So the idea of investing in a company based on book value alone in today's era is not as relevant, nearly as relevant as it was 20, 40, 50 or 100 years ago. You used to be able to buy not just companies below book value, which is below the value of the assets, but below the cash value, which is incredible. So that's what um, Benjamin Graham talked about in the original uh, books that he wrote, like security analysis, was that there are companies out there you could buy that statistically traded below the value of the cash they had in their bank account, which is just bizarre. You just don't get that these days. So um, keep that in mind. Okay. There's a lot of uh, trust trading at you know, discount to that too. Oh, yeah, like the, the yeah. real estate investment yeah. trust and these that's types a, of things. a bit of a simple one where there's less intangible value and it literally is the real asset value. And that's probably a better place to look for these types of opportunities, isn't it? Where you, If you understand like interest rates and vacancy rates for properties, it's probably a better place to look. Um, so we've probably got time for a couple more questions. Maybe I'll pick one out, then you can pick one out, Drew. I've got one, this one. I actually don't mind this one. It's probably what it says in the title as well. Stephen, I am a boring investor, question mark. That's the name. Um, thought thought Sol Pattinson was meant to be a boring conservative lick. You just wanted spikes- to ask another question on Sol Pattinson. It's in the title, so I have to do it. But it spiked 6.6% on Friday. Currently one of my best performing stocks. The total return is 42% in one year, 22% in three years. Any idea why it spiked on Friday? This is from a couple of weeks ago. And the answer is no. There was nothing that I could see from an ASX release that made that sense. Uh, the more I have learned about Seoul, the more I like them with their overall allocations to some stocks for historical reasons. For example, they have kept their winners and the exposure to unlisted companies like Amp Control. Um, their investment philosophy is a lesson in investing. It is fantastic, uh, their investment philosophy. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Seoul Pats. We've had them on the show before. Uh, it's not a lick, though. It's not a listed investment company. That's an important distinction. So like Jeff Wilson with like the Wham, that's a listed investment company. That's set up to just invest in other companies. So Pattinson is an actual company. And um, I'm going to show you what I mean here, Drew. I'm going to show you something real quick. I was in Newcastle this week. And have a guess what I saw. If anyone that's watching, you'll be able to see this as well. I don't know if you can see this on my screen. That's on my phone. I took a photo of a Washington H. Sol Pattinson chemist. Uh, must have been from a very long time ago up in Newcastle there. And so Sol Pattinson actually started as a chemist. And so it's an actual business that just happens to invest in other businesses, whereas a lick is not that. It just buys other companies. It doesn't run its own. Um, but it's not a growth stock unless your growth stock definition is to invest for 20 years. Uh, then maybe it's a growth stock. But it's income plus growth. You've got to... We did a session not too long ago on the valuation of Solpats. Happy to do one again in the future if you want, Stephen. But um, yeah, there's more to it than just looking at short-term returns. Drew? Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would say if you're judging a company on its growth potential, never ever look at one-year performance. Look years because if the long-term, all the studies show that it's five to ten years. That's when the and value of exactly the value of actual the company's performance is reflected in the share price. In the short term, what's reflected in the share price is momentum and sentiment. What question did you want to go with, mate? I don't mind Batman. Big fan. Batman. Okay. Uh, and then there's yeah. a question around virtual as well. Batman. I mean, it's kind of a simple one. This goes right into my um, my wheelhouse of superannuation and retirement. So. Salary scarify. I think it meant sacrifice, but if I <laughs> if I sacrifice more than twenty seven half thousand dollars inclusive of employee contributions to backfill previous five years, what percent is it taxed at? 
the over two, is the over 27,500 tax. Uh, my super balance is less than 500,000 and I'm under 60. Thanks, Batman. Batman. <laughs> so, that's DC a good one. Thank I'm you. a Marvel fan, but that's all right, Batman. Um, I like it. Yeah. Can you just draw uh, really quick? Because most people know this, but for those folks that don't, can you just explain why he said or she said 27,500? Yeah. So, there's two types of contributions you can make to superannuation non concessional, which is from your after tax savings. The limit on that is $110,000 per person per year, regardless of your super fund. Uh, the other is concessional contributions, and that mm -hmm. includes your super guarantee contributions from your employer that keep going up. You can top that up as well, but the limit on that is $27,500. And if you can tell, the non-concessional limit is set at four times more than the concessional limit. Uh, so these are tax-deductible contributions, but they're also taxed when they go within your fund. Uh, and Batman and Robin is talking about what are called catch-up concessional contributions. So this is, I think, a fairly recent legislative mm. change where if your balance is less than 500000 you've got the ability to use the last five years of concessional unused concessional contributions cap. So if you if you uh, contributed 20000 each year, you've got seven and a half grand over those five years. You could then top up in one year if, you're, if you meet certain requirements. So, and get the tax deduction. Um, Exactly. And the thing about super, so it's actually the exact same tax rate that you have on earnings. So the superannuation tax rate, this is seen as a, as a, tax, a taxable income of the fund, that your contribution, regardless of when it's made, the whole contribution is taxed at 15%. So when it goes in, it's taxed at 15% and yeah. inside the fund. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the yeah. contribution itself is taxed by the in the fund and by the fund yep. once it yep. goes in. Yep. yep. Cool. So... Uh, and, um, if someone wanted to contribute over that amount, what happens? Is there anything that particular that happens? If you contribute in excess of twenty seven thousand five hundred, then you've, you're in excess concessional contribution land. Mm -hmm. the, if you haven't used your non concessional contribution cap, you can generally switch it into that. Um, if you've used both caps, then you're in real excess contributions. Generally, the option these days is that you withdraw it and you might pay some tax. On the in, on the returns that you made or the in, assessed income when you had that excess in super, uh, but nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Um, it's generally taxed at your marginal tax rate for the excess yeah. that went in. Yeah. So just to clear things up there, just what Drew meant is sometimes people do put extra in by mistake and they can withdraw that, but there is there are certain hoops that you need to go through um, because there are certain tax rules that apply. Because some people earn. $400,000 a year. And so 10% of their wage is above the 27500 anyway. So they're already over the limit so they can um, do some things there. I did like that question from Drop Bear. Uh, Drop Bear Market says, hi, Owen and Drew, spelt D-R-U. I was wondering about your opinion on investing through platforms like virtual. Does this have any benefits compared to just investing through the stock exchange? Thanks for your always insightful musings, Drop Bear Market. Virtual is a platform where you can invest in private companies like tiny, well, not tiny, but small companies before they're on the stock exchange typically. Um, it's called it's, it's called crowdfunding. Is it a crowdfunding platform? I think it's got a crowdfunding platform. Um, but Drew, yeah, what do really you think a, of it? Companies going constantly with their communities to, you know, it's probably not, I've never thought about it in the same way as I've thought about private equity or public market like ASX investing. I feel like these are generally pre-profit and they're, they're very yeah. early stage and you're probably paying to get product than you are having real equity and, and upside in it. Um, not saying it's a bad thing. I think they're, they're nice. Um, they're good inclusions in the market. And and it's if you're engaging with your investments, whether it's in this way or another, I think it's a good thing. It's always going to be a small portion. Like you'd never have a big chunk of your wealth invested in this because most of these companies may not exist mm. or may not commercialize um, at any point. There's probably some benefits in uh, the companies trying to build a good customer base, nice pen. Um, it looks like it's from virtual too. Uh, and there's probably, you're actually not getting a real true equity stake or a material equity stake in most cases, but you may be getting an opportunity to say, be involved in an IPO or something else down the line if, if it's successful. Yeah. The biggest platforms like virtual equitize, even primary markets, there's a bit of this sort of stuff, a little bit different though. Um, they're called equity crowdfunding platforms and there are certain rules that apply to them. And the basic premise of why they were set up in Australia is so that folks like us can go and invest directly in brands we love, basically. So let's say, for example, Booktopia is a good example. They went through this process. Booktopia, which is one of the largest book market places in Australia, 
they needed some funding for growth. So they did this raising, capital raising through one of the platforms. And a few years after that, then they took their, their shareholders and the business to the real stock exchange, being the ASX, and now people can sell. The big risk for a lot of people beyond just picking good companies, first of all, which is hard enough, the big risk for people that invest through crowdfunding platforms, is my opinion, is what happens after you've made the investment because it's very, very hard to sell. Um, so the company, the, the platforms are working on this, but most of the time you probably want the company to have a strategy in place for managing your shareholding. And they could go to say primary, primary markets and they could plug into that, uh, which is like a kind of like an behind the scenes stock exchange. But um, you'd probably want the company to have an ambition to go onto the stock exchange so that you could eventually sell. Um, they're really interesting. I don't know if you've ever looked at them, Drew, or if you've ever done it. I've I've never done it, but I've been I've read many of the, the kind of like the prospectuses, if you like, and the documents that outline some of these small businesses and what they do. And they're really fascinating businesses. But um, just be aware you don't have a big shareholding, as Drew said, and you end up in a situation where you don't have any control and you're just relying on the company to send you updates, basically. Exactly. Uh, they have no obligation. Yeah. So, um, Joe, you did ask one final question here. Maybe while Drew gets up his uh, his joke for this week. Um, Joe, you did ask a question. You said, just tuning in, so not sure if this was answered already. I asked via the website during the week, any further plans to do more day training courses in person? Joe, we do have the one coming up in Sydney on the 4th of October. Um, we did get about 50 people right in and say we would love to do one of these sessions around the country. Drew and I talked about doing one, a retirement one as well. Um, and it's just like it's a busy end of the year. We will probably, if enough people write in Joe and say where they want to do one, there's going to be an email coming out from Rask either today or this weekend or something, sometime in the next week, that will basically say, are you coming to the workshop in Sydney? And if you're not, where would you want to um where would, where would you like it to be? Because if we get enough people say, hey, well, I want to do it in Adelaide or hey, I want to do it in Brisbane, we'll do it. I used to do them all up and down the East Coast. So, um, And if you want something else like retirement, for example, uh, come along to the Melbourne event. Um, but this was heaps of fun, Drew. If people want to get in contact with you, they can head to waddlepartners.com.au, link in the podcast player or video below. Uh, I'm surprised that we did it live on a Friday afternoon. I think it shows that we're both very tired we're kind of like hung over from our travel and um we've kind of just rocked up just like peeled ourselves off the desk and we've walked up and we've gone i reckon oh, the Jesus beers are alive. The too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been uh, it's been a heaps of fun man thanks to everyone that uh, that did join in uh, rodney cpo and uh, everyone that joined in live thanks for um thanks for uh joining us live but um we uh we will be back next week every saturday morning 7 a.m i think the best question this week is probably how much did Morgan Housel sell for? Like it. Agree? You got that yeah. one? Yeah. We're going to go so, on the dad jokes here too. Okay. One of the best dad jokes. Guys, if you're live here, we can rate Drew's joke out of 10. So we've never done this live. So if you're in the chat right now on the YouTube channel on Rask, um, and you just happen to be here at the right time, he's going to bless us with this joke. Let's give it a score out of 10. All right, go. When does a joke become a dad joke oh i don't know when it becomes apparent <laughs> that's actually pretty good i will actually keep i'll give you like a seven or an eight for that man that's actually pretty that's good right. when that. it becomes apparent let's see what the guys and the guys in the chat have to say about that out of 10 oh God. what what is it what is it give us the score um that was actually pretty good uh and while they do that uh don't forget you can you can get tickets for the Rask Roadshow event uh, on any of the websites. We'd love to see you in Sydney. CP's given it a 10 out of 10. That's pretty good. Zero, says Joe, went to sleep. <laughs> Brian says five. <laughs> so we're between a 10, a five, and a zero from these three, uh, we end up with a five on average. That's pretty good. Um, uh, I thought when it gets listed on the ASX, oh, gosh, CP, oh, my, oh my Lord. Um, well, thank you, guys. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, everyone who's tuning in on a Saturday, We'll see you next week. Don't forget your questions. Love your work. If you did write in how much did Morgan's house sell for, you got yourself a pass to the Value Investor Program. Write in. See you for now, Drew. And uh, have a great weekend, mate. Good to see you, you too.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.